Like many primitive men, he knows without knowing why he knows. He drinks of the sap of life without looking for the roots, writes Vanity Fair writer Jim Tully about the covered wagon director James Cruz. Hello everyone and welcome back to your Wagon Train to the West, aka the Golden Silent Films podcast. Our names have been input, we've stocked up on provisions at the general store, and we are set to head out on the Oregon Trail, much like the folks in this episode's focus, 1923's The Covered Wagon. Before we yeehaw and giddy up, let's give the usual Golden Silent Films podcast social media roundup. No smoke signals or Pony Express is required for these communications. As usual, please join Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date information on this little podcast. And for all of you pioneers out there on Twitter, just follow at Golden Silence 1, that's at Golden Silence and the number 1, or just search for Golden Silence Cast and we ought to pop up. All those screen names and sites will be in the episode description in case you are interested in checking us out. We would love to have you on board our covered wagon. At both social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes pics and info, upcoming episode reveals, and other fun film-related materials. And great photos of our trailblazing podcasts, Gizmo and Soda. Also, if you're listening to this program on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, do leave a review, a rating, or even both. All of those ratings and reviews help immensely. Live your best review leaving life and help our show grow and reach some fellow silent film fans. Whether getting us more exposure in the wide open spaces of podcast land or letting us know how we can improve, we appreciate the feedback and always want to bring you the best show possible. And do subscribe to the Golden Silent Films podcast. While our output can be spotty, if you are subscribed, you will never miss an episode. And the moment new content drops, it will go straight to your listening device of choice. We are elbow deep in our third season and don't want you to miss a second. While this film can be found online at streaming sites like YouTube, we will be discussing the Kino Lorber Fancy Schmancy Blu-ray edition of The Covered Wagon. Like many of the Kino releases we have discussed in the past, this one packs a pioneer's wagon full of special features and quality picture and sound. Amongst the special features on this disc, there is a wonderful commentary track by film historian Toby Roan and a one-reel spoof called The Pie-Covered Wagon from 1932 starring Shirley Temple. Also included is a booklet essay by film scholar Matt Hauska. On the other side of things, this release includes a Wurlitzer organ score performed by Gaylord Carter. All in all, this is a tremendous piece to any film lover's collection and truly is the best way, I think, to view the covered wagon. Any conversation about this film should start with the leader of this West Coast road trip, director James Cruz. His life story begins with the legendary director being born Jens Veracruz Boson in Five Points, Utah, on March 27, 1884. He was the son of a Mormon Danish immigrant. His middle name, Veracruz, came from the famous Battle of Veracruz. Later, he would slightly alter his name to James Cruz for the screen, but he would still hang on to the Boson surname in his private life. Jim Tully, writer Jim Tully, takes us into the earliest years of James Cruz and the inspirations of the future director. Tully writes, As illiterate as Millet's peasants, his parents were nevertheless strong plants, untouched by the fungus 
of pseudo-American civilization. Their son heard tales of the pioneers from babyhood. From somewhere out of the centuries, he has inherited a strong and powerful brain. With less than two years of schooling, Tully continues, and that coming in a pine shack in the desert, he has somehow managed to become a great student of Shakespeare. The poetry of Shakespeare does not impress him. The mighty master's ability to pack a world of meaning in line is the quality which appeals to him. Now, as the host of this show and wanting to give you as much as possible, I would really love to go in-depth into the childhood and early years of James Cruz, but that would really only confuse matters. You see, Cruz had a habit of never letting the truth get in the way of a good biography. The retelling of his life story had a habit of changing from interview to interview. If you're interested in the ins and outs of Cruz's life, go no further than www.thanhauser.org. This site has fantastic information about all things related to the Thanhauser Film Studio, a studio which, at one point, employed Cruz. It has great background on the studio as well as the folks working there. Their article chronicling the fascinating life of James Cruz is super chock full of great info and research. Speaking of that research, the site relates an article by John Willem Collette in the New Rochelle Pioneer out of New Rochelle, New York, home of Thanhauser Studios. The article is dated September 12, 1914. In this article, we get some details of Cruz's early work history. It reads, Jimmy got stung by the stage insect before he had reached the age when it was time to quit school, and he joined Billy Banks' medicine show to tour that part of the West. His wanderings led him into Idaho, where he went broke with the show and turned his attention to newspaper work, holding down the arduous task of interviewing the people in and about the flea-bitten town of Oakley for the news. However, it became so strenuous that Jim sighed for the safer fields and caught on with the company producing Shakespeare's plays. He was made stage manager, and from then on, the uphill climb brought him nearer the top. In an article for Vanity Fair written by Jim Tully, who we've heard from a little bit earlier, in an article written in December of 1927, we get a look at some of the other short-lived employment opportunities of the legendary director. Tully writes, At 14, young Bozen ran away from home and changed his name to Cruz. He became, in turn, a hobo and later a roustabout on a whaling vessel which plied Alaskan waters for two years. His next occupation was that of a waiter on a passenger steamer bound for Japan. This guy, who in a short amount of time lived a wilder life than many folks could ever dream of living over a long life. As mentioned earlier, his wheel of adventure would eventually land on acting. But like much of his life, it would be a bit of a convoluted ride to get there. Now, that Thanhauser.org website biography on Cruz also includes an article from the Hollywood Citizen News from August 4th, 1942. It gives us that long, winding road that led Cruz to acting. It reads, He spent a season as a seaman and salmon fisher in Alaskan waters and returned with enough money for a complete course in acting. Two weeks after he enrolled, he got a job as a leading man with Billy Banks' Tent Show, a traveling organization touring Central California. His salary was $10 a week. Finally, the show ended in Lodi. The young actor, then broke, pawned his watch for $4 and practiced going hungry again. Then he got an acting job in Idaho and joined a stock company in Salt Lake City. Later, he went on the road with Hutchinson's Imperial Stock Company, which traveled by wagon and played in halls, empty stores, and hotels. He was the leading man and driver of the four-horse baggage wagon. At Fort Duchesne, Utah, 
he was especially lucky in a poker game and won enough money from an army officer to buy a big show tent. So he organized his own company and started on tour, first in wagons and later during a period of prosperity in a railroad baggage car. The company eventually went broke. After two years with small stock companies, medicine shows, and vaudeville, Mr. Cruz began his picture career. Now that brings us to the beginning of an incredibly prolific cinematic career for Mr. Cruz. Though we know him as a director, Cruz was really a man of many talents regarding showbiz. That Thanhauser article continues, Cruz's first motion picture work is believed to have been with Lubin, with whom he had a role in the January 1910 release of The Usurper. The next stop was Path, where among other films he played in the August 1911 release of A Boy of the Revolution, in which Jack Pickford appeared. James Cruz joined the Thanhauser Company in the first half of 1911, where his first part may have been a role in The Pied Piper of Hamlin, released August 1, 1911, although he later stated that his first Thanhauser picture was She, released in two reels, December 26, 1911 and January 2, 1912. It was in two Thanhauser serials that Cruz would be one of the lead characters. One of those two serials was entitled The Million Dollar Mystery. Now, Jim Telly writes, When business was dull on the stage, he would work as a waiter. After an ineffectual existence in New York, he became the star of one of the best-known serials ever made, The Million Dollar Mystery. He had acquired a slight reputation of playing of Indian roles in western states and tried to repeat his success in the east. Cruz wasn't just acting at Thanhauser Studios, however. Cruz would take the helm for at least one Thanhauser picture at least one Thanhauser picture, 1914's From Wash to Washington. Cruz's big moves wouldn't be limited to business. While at the studio, he would meet and marry Thanhauser star Marguerite Snow in February of 1913 in Los Angeles. The two would have a daughter, Julie, on October 24, 1913. A long and fruitful career at Thanhauser would not be in the cards for the old cruiser, though. In early 1915, the man behind Thanhauser, Edwin Thanhauser, cut ties with the director. His services were no longer required, and he was future-endeavored in short order. Now, shout-out to the wrestling fans out there who hopefully enjoyed that reference. So, no longer gainfully employed, Cruz was making some financial enemies as well. Despite going on a mini-publicity tour, creditors never lost sight of the director. He owed money, and they would not let him forget it. In an effort to make a buck and get back behind the camera, Cruz worked at a small film production company in Palo Alto, California, before joining his wife at Metro Pictures Corporation in 1916. While there, he would appear in the 1916 film The Snowbird. His next stop would be Fox in 1917. The Moving Picture World magazine, dated March 17, 1917, wrote about his transition to Fox. The article reads, James Cruz, known wherever a motion picture screen is to be found, is the newest of prominent photo players to join the still rapidly growing William Fox forces. Millions of silent drama fans will remember Mr. Cruz as the intrepid reporter, the star character in the big serial The Million Dollar Mystery. This part came as a fitting reward for his seven years in film. From 1909 to 1916, he was allied at various times with Thanhauser, Path, Kinemacolor, Metro, Kimberly, and Lasky. Now, that Thanhauser article goes on to explain how Cruz made the move from acting to focusing solely on directing. That article reads, 
He played in the 1917 Fox release of Her Temptation and the same year in the films On the Level, What Money Can't Buy, and Nan of Music Mountain. In 1918, he was in Paramount Films' Less Than Kin, Wild Youth, Too Many Millions, and Hidden Pearls. Around the same time, he broke a leg, making further effective acting impossible. Therefore, he turned to directing. In 1919, he directed You're Fired and The Love Burglar for Paramount, and in 1920, he directed Miss Temple's Telegram and Terror Island for the same company. Now, the Roaring Twenties would be very good for James Cruz. He would finally make his mark and make his name in the movie world with 1923's The Covered Wagon. Now, the success of this picture really propelled him, really pushed him to those upper tiers of the directorial world. In fact, it would be reported that he was the highest paid director in the business with a $7,000 a week salary. Now, despite those laurels and cash and money and prizes heaped upon Cruz, he was not without his detractors. Now, we're going to go back to Jim Tully, who writes, He has enemies, a few who are temporarily powerful, but who are silhouettes of men in comparison with the magnificent ruffian who is, at $7,000 a week, the highest salaried director in the world. Tully continues, The treatment accorded James Cruz is, to me, a perfect example of the lack of foresight and knowledge of human nature exhibited by producers. He has directed over 50 pictures, only two of which have not been commercial successes. They have made a mannequin of a master. It was only by accident that he was given the covered wagon to direct. He was the one man fitted by nature and background to direct this picture. This, of course, the producers did not know, as he had only been nine years in pictures and had directed only 40-odd films. Many other pictures were directed by Cruz in the 1920s and 1930s, and until the late 20s, a number of these were incredibly successful on the financial side of things. Among his biggest hits were Old, Iron, Old Ironsides, The Old Homestead, Ruggles of, Red Gaps, amongst, Ruggles of Red Gap, amongst many other notable pictures. In 1926 and 1929, polls named him as one of the world's ten best directors. Not only did he make big movies, but he also directed big names. There's Fatty Arbuckle, Will Rogers, Claudette Colbert, Wallace Reed, just to name a few. In an interview with Photoplay Magazine, January 1913, he stated, One girl is enough for me, providing, of course, she is the girl. But apparently, Marguerite Snow wasn't the girl after all for him, as he divorced her in 1922. Following his divorce from Marguerite Snow in 1922, Cruz led a riotous life as a bachelor. Cruz collaborator Carl Brown, in a story printed in the April 1986 Films in Review, spoke of the director's wild streak. Cruz was now completely free to indulge his own natural urges, and he became a living exemplar of the beggar on horseback. He not only did as he pleased, he overdid every chance he got to thumb his nose at whatever is considered polite behavior among civilized people. On October 14, 1925, James Cruz would marry film actress Betty Compson in Los Angeles. A peaceful and tranquil aura would not always wash over the Cruz-Compson household, seeing as Cruz continued his habits of wild parties, foul language, and drunken fights. Neighbors were often forced to call the police in order to quiet the party house in the early hours of the morning. Apparently, Cruz enjoyed the image he projected. For... A biography by Marjorie Wilson, published in 1928, noted, He is the self-conscious primitive. It pleases him to be thought crude and rude. 
It delights him for people to think he had no schooling. He will tell interviewers that he is entirely ignorant, and yet the writer has seen a school program which named him Valid Victorian. Cruz's marital differences with Betty Compson regularly made it to the papers. In a newspaper report dated March 29, 1927, it was reported, Jimmy Cruz and his wife, Betty Compson, are reported to have come to the parting of their ways for the third time within two years. It is understood that the couple contemplate legal separation by Miss Compson in inaugurating divorce proceedings. By July 18, 1927, Cruz had filed incorporation papers for his own company, James Cruz Productions, capitalized for $10,000. Later, he formed a related company, James Cruz Inc., which intended to make five pictures each year and release them to the DeMille PDC Path organization. Cruz would personally direct two of these films each year. The Thanhauser website breaks down the ensuing business ventures of James Cruz thusly. The article reads, it was announced on March 23, 1929, that James Cruz, Inc. had purchased the property of Chadwick Pictures, consisting of a lot at 1440 North Gower Street, Hollywood, measuring 220 by 312 feet, with office buildings and a small store. Improvements to cost $100,000 were projected, in connection with 15 talking pictures to be produced there under a budget of $1 million. In December of the same year, the trade was informed of eight that eight talking pictures consisting of $3 million would be produced by Cruz within the coming six months, and that in addition to the company's own facilities, the studios of Metropolitan and Educational would also be employed. Cruz was set personally to direct such pictures as Circus Parade, The Big Fight, and Anne Boyd. A popular Cruz early talkie was The Great Gabbo, starring wife Betty Compson. On April 8, 1929, Cruz and his wife legally separated. On April 19, 1930, Betty Compson filed for divorce in Los Angeles. The suit alleged that Cruz kept open house every night, Sundays, and holidays. So basically, he was a partier who couldn't get enough of wild and rowdy fun. She stated that he preferred the company of his wild, rowdy friends to her companionship, and that the conditions in their home were so noisy that it was impossible for her to study her lines. However, she stated that they had parted on the best of terms. By early 1930, James Cruz, Inc. was bankrupt. In February, the General Outdoor Advertising Company filed suit against the studio, alleging non-payment of a bill totaling $17,000. In a separate action, Elizabeth K. Chadwick alleged that the property Cruz had agreed to buy from her had not been paid for. Another action filed in federal court in Los Angeles on April 2, 1930, alleged that Cruz and his company had violated the bankruptcy laws and that claims amounting to $9,935 had not been paid. Creditors included McCurran's Grill, Metropolitan Sound Studios, and Smith and Adler. Jim Tully would remark, Self-conscious, even to the verge of painful shyness at times, he has no sentimentality and no illusions about life. In speaking of movie directors, he once said to me, None of us are great. All told, Cruz acted in and directed or produced over 100 films. The cost of each film, Tully explains, is charged against the director in the final reckoning. Cruz is too aware of this. He is too often the young hobo burned deep by the branding iron of necessity. He is fearful of letting slip his $1,000 a day. 
There is in him the hard fiber of a man who succeeds in earning enormous sums for a corporation, Tully continues. It is only now and then that an inner urge hurts him. What is left of this tiny acorn in the man may yet make him the one oak among directors. So, with the director out of the way, next, how about we look at our obligatory Pittsburgh portion of the episode? Well, I guess a sort of Pittsburgh portion, and that will deal with Lois Wilson, the Molly Wingate of this expedition. She was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on June 28, 1894. Even though she would be raised in Birmingham, Alabama, we here at the Golden Silent Films podcast will always consider her a yinzer and a local girl made good. Now She would try her hand as a school teacher, but that didn't really last long as she decided to pursue her first love of entertainment. According to the March 10, 1988 edition of the New York Times, we hear a familiar story. The article reads, Miss Wilson sought fame in Hollywood after winning a 1915 statewide beauty contest in her native Alabama. After her arrival in Hollywood, she landed a small part in The Dumb Girl of Portici, which starred the ballerina Anna Pavlova. So, for all of you faithful listeners out there, it is time for your entertainment contest drink for this episode. It's been a while since we've had an appearance of the old-fashioned entertainment contest, but there's a certain comfort in being able to talk about it again. Now, the February 23rd issue of Picture Play magazine dishes on this contest win in its aftermath. The article asks, How many winners of beauty contests are now screen stars as per promise? There is Lois Wilson. Miss Wilson has had to work so hard to live so strictly and to play so many parts that she has forgotten she was once a professional beauty. Following her pageant success in Alabama, Wilson would audition and land some film roles with Victor Film Company in 1915 and gained valuable experience quickly. She visited Chicago where she met pioneer female film director Lois Weber, also a Pittsburgher, who gave her a small part in the aforementioned film The Dumb Girl of Portici in 1916. She displayed such talent that Miss Weber took her to Los Angeles where she was groomed for stardom and began playing leads opposite the likes of J. Warren Kerrigan and Frank Keenan. She entered into a contract with famous players Paramount in 1919 and played leading roles opposite such stars as Wallace Reed and Bryant Washburn. Her acting abilities convinced William DeMille, brother of Cecil B., to give Lois an important role in his production Midsummer Madness in 1920, opposite Conrad Nagel and Lila Lee. Her performance in Miss Lulu Bet in 1921 would win incredible praise from critics and the public alike. She was cast as the female lead in The World's Champion in 1922, opposite Wallace Reed. She also appeared as the feminine leads in successful films like Is Matrimony a Failure? Our Leading Citizen, both of those in 1922, opposite Thomas Megan, also a Pittsburgher. Lots of Pittsburgh mentions in this little segment. And she scored a triumph in Cecil B. DeMille's production Manslaughter in 1922, opposite Thomas Megan again. Now, another big feather in the cap of Lois Wilson would come in 1922 as well. She was named a Wampus Baby Star of 1922. We've talked about it before, but the Wampus Baby Stars campaign started that year, and every year after, the publicist would select a group of young actresses who were under contract at big studios, whom they felt were on the threshold of stardom. We've talked about this killer draft class in previous episodes, but here's a quick refresher. Also honored as a Wampus Baby Star of 1922 were the likes of Lila Lee, 
Bessie Love, Colleen Moore, and Mary Philbin, just to name a few. This would lead nicely to, arguably, her biggest role, that being the female lead in 1923's The Covered Wagon. In fact, the role was so big she would joke, from now on, whenever an audience sees me, they'll look around for a covered wagon. Indeed, she ended up playing leads in several Western pictures right after this one. She managed to break free of the Westerns for a while, and played an important role in Paula Negri's Belladonna, a Paramount picture produced by George Fitzmaurice featuring Conway Turrell. She would also act opposite Rudolph Valentino in Monsieur Bouquet in 1924, where she played the role of Queen Marie. She would also portray the legendary literary character of Daisy Buchanan in the first film version of The Great Gatsby in 1926, which, unfortunately, is now a lost film. Lois Wilson never married, and for many years she lived with her parents. One of her closest friends in the business was Gloria Swanson. Lois made the transition to sound films with relatively no problems. She is probably best remembered today for her role as the tragic mother of Shirley Temple in one of Shirley's most popular films, Bright Eyes, in 1934. Wilson's parts happened to become smaller and smaller after the 30s, working for Universal and B-movies like B-movie companies like Republic. She became kind of disappointed with her career and eventually retired in 1941. After this, she did mainly theatrical work, including Broadway and some television. From 1954 to 1955, she was seen in the soap opera Guiding Light. On March 3, 1988, Lois Wilson died of pneumonia at Riverside Hospital for Skilled Care in Reno, Nevada, at the age of 93. So, for our next bit of biography business, we're going to do things a little different. We're going to give an opening quote and kind of go from there. Now, the quote goes a little something like this. I am not going to war. I will go, of course, if my country needs me. But I think that first they should take the great mass of men who aren't good for anything else or are only good for the lower grades of work. Actors, musicians, great writers, artists of every kind. Isn't it a pity when people are sacrificed who are capable of such things? Of adding to the beauty of the world? And with that quote to the Denver Times in May of 1917, J. Warren Kerrigan would dig himself a hole and proceed to bury his career as a leading man on the big screen. But, let's rewind back a little bit to the beginning. George Jack Warren Kerrigan was born on July 25th, 1879, 1881, 1882, one of those, in New Albany, Indiana. He was one of twin sons of John Kerrigan from Ireland and Sarah McLean. Settling in Louisville, Kentucky, John Kerrigan found work as a clerk in a warehouse while Sarah bore six children before the twins came. John and Sarah would take Jack and his seven siblings across the Ohio River to New Albany, Indiana in 1880, where John took over as a superintendent of a local wholesale warehouse. Jack Kerrigan, the boy, worked as a warehouse clerk in his teens until the chance arrived to appear in a vaudeville production. Kerrigan had big dreams of the stage from early on in his childhood. In an interview with Photoplay Magazine in the May 1914 edition, written by Richard Willis, Kerrigan would talk about his earliest theatrical expectations and aspirations as a child. Kerrigan would say, As a boy, I was always quiet and reserved and loved to get out in the woods alone and study the flowers and the earth 
and indeed everything that breathed of the open, and I dreamed all the time of the stage, great big dreams with a great big future ahead. He continued to act in traveling stock productions, though he took a brief time away from the stage to attend the University of Illinois. When asked by Richard Willis how he got his start on stage, Kerrigan talks about the influence of his older sister Kathleen. Kerrigan would say, Kathleen is to be thanked for that. She went on the stage at the age of 17 and, as you know, has been very successful. He would sign on with Universal's Victor Studios in 1913 and move to Hollywood with his mother, twin brother Wallace, and widowed sister Kathleen. With his switch to the silver screen, his sister Kathleen would say that the move was bittersweet. She would say, The legitimate stage lost one of its most promising young actors when Warren went into the movies. Now, it's around this time he started living together with his partner in love and life, James Vincent. By the time he was 30 years old, he had begun to make appearances in films for SNA Studios. A contract with the newly formed American Film Corporation finally opened the door to more leading roles. An article entitled The Great God Kerrigan in the February 1916 edition of Photoplay magazine gives us a glimpse into that run with the AFC and his eventual signing with Universal. The article reads, A few months later, the American Film Company was organized, and Kerrigan was the first member engaged. He turned out two pictures every week for three years, nearly every picture being of the wild and woolly West variety. Then came his chance to join with Universal, which he has been working ever since. With his star at its brightest and momentum on his side, Kerrigan would make those fateful and ill-advised remarks related that we related at the outset. That quote would dog and follow Jack for the rest of his career. With his career slowing down, let's take a look at the personal life of J. Warren Kerrigan. Kerrigan lived with his domestic partner, James Carroll Vincent, from about 1914 until Kerrigan's death in 1947. And in what would make for a full house, his mother, sister, and brother would all eventually live in that same house. By the early 20s, Kerrigan and his career would finally start to rebound. His role in 1923's The Covered Wagon would put Kerrigan's name back in the lights. Having appeared in a handful of movies released in 1913, the public was once again clamoring for the leading man. He would make his final film role a starring spot in 1924's Captain Blood. After a serious automobile accident in December of 1924, Kerrigan suffered injuries that would leave him scarred and injured. The after-effects of this crash hastened the end of his on-screen work. Over his career, J. Warren Kerrigan starred in well over 300 films between 1913 and 1924. He would die of pneumonia on June 9, 1947 at his home in Balboa Beach. He died at the age of 67. Richard Willis ties up our discussion of Kerrigan thusly. J. Warren Kerrigan is a real good fellow. He is right up top and means to keep there. His work is noticeable is notable for its earnestness, study, and intelligence, and he is responsible for the statement that he is still learning and supposes he always will be. Of course he always will be. That proves he is a sensible fellow and a conscientious artist. For our next step into life stories, let's take a look at a man with a familiar face and a familiar name but a career that really not very many people know that much about. I am, of course, talking about Alan Hale Sr. If that name sounds familiar and you find yourself thinking about three-hour tours, I am here to validate your feelings. 
His son, Alan Hale Jr., would eventually play the lovable skipper Jonas Grumby in the legendary show Gilligan's Island, one of my favorites of all time. And you can visually see the resemblance between father and son. And I can vouch for that. Every time I saw him on screen, I could only think of his son because I was so used to Gilligan's Island. But their resemblance is uncanny. For our purposes here, though, we will be talking all things Senior. I was amazed to see what a full and robust career Alan Hale Senior had. His is not a name that gets thrown around a lot or is surrounded by glitz and glamour. On top of that, his cinematic successes weren't limited to working in front of the camera. Hale was born Rufus Edward McAhan on February 10, 1892 in Washington, D.C. Before entering the movie industry, Hale worked as a reporter on the old Philadelphia Bulletin. His first film role would come in 1911's The Cowboy and the Lady. By 1913, he would be gainfully employed by the Biograph Company for a two-year stretch. Whilst we are still in the 1910s, let's talk about the personal life of Alan Hale Sr. In addition to roles on screen, Hall would enter into the real-life role of husband when he married silent film actress Gretchen Hartman. In a fun example of art imitating life, Hartman and Hale would appear together in several films, including 1915's East Lynn, and Rolling Stones and the Purple Lady in 1916. Her film career would come to an end after making only a handful of appearances in the talkies. By the late teens and 20s, Hale had built himself a solid reputation as a character actor. One of the biggest and most noteworthy roles of his early st- in this early stage of his career came with a supporting role in Rex Ingram's World War I blockbuster The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in 1921. In that Valentino star maker, Hale played Carl von Hartrott, Back on the personal side of things, Alan Hale Jr. would be born on March 8, 1921 in Los Angeles, California. In addition to Jr., Alan and Gretchen also had two daughters, Karen and Jean. Hale would take a trip to Sherwood Forest in 1922 in what would become a legacy role for him. He portrayed the legendary character Little John in the 1922 version of Robin Hood starring Douglas Fairbanks and Wallace Beery. Hale was so well suited to the role and really it worked for him seeing as how he would return to it in the adventures of robin hood in 1938 and rogues of sherwood forest in 1950 in 1950 which would see its release shortly after hale's death his string of hits to start the roaring 20s continued with his role as sam woodhull in 1923 release of the covered wagon his career in the silence and later the talkies would be one marked with co-star roles opposite some of the biggest stars of the day Here's just a taste of that insane list of co-workers. There was The Trap in 1922 starring Lon Chaney. There was also Skyscraper in 1928 starring Betty Davis. The 30s would see the who's who of stars continue. In 1934 alone, Hale would work with Catherine Hepburn in The Little Minister and Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert in It Happened One Night. This great run continued into the 40s. You get They Drive By Night in Virginia City both with Humphrey Bogart in 40 and Manpower with Edward G. Robinson and Marlene Dietrich. Desperate Journey was released in 1942, and it starred Errol Flynn and Ronald Reagan. Overall, in a career that spanned from 1911 to 1950, Hale would appear in over 230 films. And speaking of those top-notch co-stars, Hale would appear in 13 pictures with Errol Flynn. And if that wasn't enough, Hale also tried his hand at directing, which he did eight times throughout the 20s and the 30s. Alan Hale Sr. would pass away on January 22, 1950 at Presbyterian Hospital in Hollywood of a viral infection 
He was buried in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. Now that we've talked about the people involved with this picture, let's talk about how the picture actually came together. And like many a good film, The Covered Wagon started its life as a novel. In this case, it was The Covered Wagon by Emerson Huff, written in 1922. In an article for Variety dated January 1, 1923, we get a look into that book of pioneering adventure. The article reads, Emerson Huff, who wrote The Covered Wagon for the Saturday Evening Post, chose for his subject those pioneers who left their farms and safeguarded homes in the territory of east of the Ohio and started in prairie schooners for the Pacific Coast in 1847, before the discovery that the California hills contained the glittering metal that was to be a tremendous lure in 1849. This was a formative time for films in the Western genre. They were considered to be very low-brow. The Western genre really wasn't ex respected that much. It was a genre to be enjoyed, just not necessarily respected. According to an article in the March 31, 1923 Exhibitor's Trade Review, Paramount Pictures president Jesse L. Lasky got the idea to make the covered wagon from Will H. Hayes, head of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, a.k.a. the MPPDA. During an early 1922 conference in Hollywood, California, Hayes suggested that it would be a splendid thing for the movie industry, which had been having public relations problems because of scandals, if a studio made a picture with a tremendous theme of Americanism. Coming up with the idea and notion to make a movie is one thing. To actually bring it to life is a whole nother thing altogether. And to bring a movie like The Covered Wagon to life is in a whole other category above that, full of logistical nightmares and incredibly grueling hard work. First, a worthy director had to be brought on board. A leader built for such a potentially unwieldy production. We return to Jim Tully for a quick word about James Cruz's Bonafides. Tully writes, with such a background, and after he had directed more than 40 films for famous players Lasky, there was no man in the organization with a keen enough knowledge of personality immediately to select James Cruz to direct The Covered Wagon. After every director on the lot had expressed disapproval of handling the film, it was given to the Danish-American. Cruz had been a trial horse who had never failed. When the picture had been given to Cruz, another fortunate thing happened. It was discovered that the film could not be taken on a small background, so the company sent him to Utah with his crew of several hundred players and floating gentry of humanity. As the distance was too far for company officials to travel, they were forced to allow the director complete individual expression, Tully concludes. The film required a large cast and film crew and many extras, and was filmed in various locations including Palm Springs, California and several places in Nevada and Utah. James Cruz and a few members of his company went early in October to Antelope Island in Salt Lake to film the buffalo hunt, which is one of the most thrilling parts of the covered wagon, Picture Play magazine tells us. Paramount also put out a call to wagon owners across the country to help make this movie as realistic as possible. These wagons were heirlooms and symbols of family pride. They were wagons that, in some cases, actually took their owners west. The producers offered the owners $2 a day and feed for their stock, in exchange for the use of their wagons during filming. Most of the extras in the movie are the families who own the covered wagons. This meant they had a fair amount of experience in driving them and were comfortable living out of them for the duration of filming. In an entry from the American Film Institute website, which you can find at www.afi.org, we get a great look at the pre-production advertising that went into this huge production. The article reads, 
Paramount Pictures ran a full-page advertisement in several trade magazines, including the November 25, 1922 issue of Camera, proclaiming, The covered wagon is on the way, calling the production the most gigantic motion picture undertaking ever attempted. The advertisement printed a letter from one Lou Marcus, who had spent two days on location. I saw things which scarcely believed possible to be set up in a desert. A wagon train two miles long, a thousand people, including 250 Indians, a camp of over 200 tents, a complete electric lighting system, a commissary department as efficient as a hotel. There will never be another picture like this. No one else would go to the expense of $12,000 a day for two or three months to make it. The company is 90 miles from the railroad, and we had to travel over the worst roads I ever saw to get there. The temperature at night is about three above zero, but nobody complains. While we're mentioning the weather on location, let's go to on-set correspondent Lois Wilson. In a letter from the set to Picture Play magazine from April 1923, she gives the scoops on all the massive production issues and weather conditions at Camp Cruz, as it was called. She writes, I promise to write and tell you about our experiences on location here in the heart of Snake Valley where we are filming the covered wagon. We're only 85 miles from a railroad. The camp, housing the greatest number of people ever taken on location, includes the mess tent, commissary, and small tents for each member of the cast and is laid out like a regular city with a poplar-shaded boulevard and numerous cross streets. It is built around a lake which becomes a river for us because Emerson Huff put one in his story. Now, I was about to move on to the movie breakdown, but I just realized, kind of coming up with this last second, but I realized that we missed an important piece of the covered wagon puzzle. When you're filming such a monstrous production, logistics-wise, it's incredibly important to have a talented editor. Someone who can cut through the craziness and deliver an epic story to the silver screen. Now, the covered wagon most definitely had that with Dorothy Arzner. So this bonus bio I'm adding in at the last second may add an extra few minutes to this episode's running time, but hers, that's Dorothy Arzner, is a story that really merits inclusion and I wasn't going to pass up. In the Blood and Sand episode, we talked about her in passing, but I feel like we should go a little deeper here. Dorothy Emma Ardzner was born on January 3rd, 1897 in San Francisco, California, but grew up in Los Angeles, where her father owned a restaurant that was frequented by some of the biggest celebrity names of the time. After graduating from high school, the Westlake School for Girls in Los Angeles, she enrolled at the University of Southern California. It was there she spent two years studying medicine with the idea she would eventually become a doctor. With the breakout of World War I, Artsner joined a local Southern California ambulance unit. Eventually, the future editor and director would decide against pursuing a career in medicine. Though World War I would lead Arzner out of medicine, it also had the effect of drawing her in to film. In an article entitled Dorothy Arzner, Mother of Invention, for the website of the Australian Center for the Moving Image at www.acmi.net.au, we see this transition of careers. It was written by Maria Lewis. Lewis writes, Following the First World War, the industry was looking for workers, whether they had experience or not. It was the perfect environment for Arzner to get her start. First employed as a typist in the script department at Famous Players Lasky Corporation, which would later become Paramount, following a fateful meeting with Cecil B. DeMille's brother, William. Well, this was the beginning of a whirlwind rise through the studio system. She worked hard and did great work with a great eye. 
she would rise from the script department to editing some of the biggest pictures in Hollywood. This leads nicely into our mention of her and her work in Blood and Sand. Now, writer Allison Nadia Field explains more in an article for the fantastic Women Film Pioneers Project website. She writes, After six months, she became a cutter and editor at Real Art Studio, a subsidiary of Paramount. As chief editor, she cut and edited 52 films before being recalled to Paramount to cut and edit the Valentino vehicle Blood and Sand in 1922, her first big picture and the first film for which she had undertaken some of the filming. It was Arzner's work on Blood and Sand that brought her onto the radar of director James Cruz, who would later employ her as a writer and editor for a number of his films. In addition to editing, like she did here on The Covered Wagon, she would also do double duty on occasion like she did on Cruz's old Ironsides. Her time in the Cruz camp proved so successful that Arzner was able to wield a fair amount of leverage and saw her potential as way more than just an editor. She saw bigger and better things in her future and used her influence to threaten to leave Paramount for Columbia if she wasn't in a director's chair of some sort. The studio would eventually relent and give her a spot in that captain's chair. Paramount ended up offering her a chance to direct a comedy based on the play The Best Dressed Woman in Paris, which would later be released as Fashions for Women in 1927. This first picture in the career of Dorothy Arzner would mark the beginning of a legendary and influential career in movies. With a film career spanning from 1919 to 1943, 15 years of those which were spent as a director, Dorothy Arzner remains one of the most big-time, prolific women's studio directors in the history of American cinema. We turn back to writer Maria Lewis, who writes about her impact beyond just the artistic side of things. In fact, she even led to some technological advancements on movie sets. Lewis writes, So successful were her features at Paramount, she was barely in her 30s when the studio tasked her with making their first talkie, The Wild Party, in 1929. Besides being a significant commercial hit, and spawning a subgenre of comedies about hard partying college students, it was, it was crucial to the invention of the boom mic. With silent movie star Clara Bow in the lead role, the actress was struggling with her physical performance due to the need to stay so still for the onset microphone and its ability to pick up her audio. Arzner came up with the idea to rig a microphone to a fishing rod and have technicians lower it over Bow's head so she wouldn't be restricted. It's a device more commonly known as the boom mic today, and the concept was patented shortly after. Arzner would leave the studio in 1932, taking her talents to the freelance world. A dec the decade of the 30s saw her direct or co-direct 13 films with some of the biggest names in Hollywood. By 1943, she directed her last film and retired from the director's chair. Even though she left directorial work officially, she would still keep herself involved in the world of filmmaking. She would make women's Army Corps training films during World War II, just as an example. In 1952, she joined the staff of the College of the Arts, the Playhouse, as the head of cinema and television department. She taught the first year of cinema in the university. In 1961, Arzner joined the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television in the Motion Picture Division as a staff member, where she spent four years supervising advanced cinema classes before retiring in 1965. Arzner's documents, files, and films are preserved in, cinema, in the cinema and television file in UCLA. One of her students there, interestingly enough, was a young Francis Ford Coppola. In an article from the UCLA Library Film and Television Archive website, 
we read about the lasting legacy of Dorothy Arzner. The article reads, Although Arzner thought of herself as an ordinary working director rather than a pioneer, her status as one of the first women directors, and the only one at the time working within the Hollywood studio system, has attracted feminist attention. Although she was working within the constraints of the studio system, Arzner has stated that because she was not dependent on movies for her living, she was always willing to give a film to another director if she couldn't make it her way. In her last years, Arzner left Hollywood and went to live in the desert. She died in 1979 at the age of 82 in La Quinta, California. Now, with all of that being said, much like the pioneers of our story, we took the long road to get here, but we finally did it. We finally made it to the point where we can actually talk about the covered wagon itself. It's been a long and interesting trail that led us here, but now, let's talk movie. Adolph and Jesse L. Lasky present The Covered Wagon, a James Cruz production from the novel by Emerson Huff, adapted by Jack Cunningham and photographed by Carl Brown and directed by James Cruz. The film begins by telling us the blood of America is the blood of pioneers, the blood of lion-hearted men and women who carve a splendid civilization out of an uncharted wilderness. With dauntless courage facing unknown perils, the men and women of the 40s flung the boundaries of the nation westward and still westward beyond the Mississippi, beyond the prairies, beyond the Rockies, until they bounded the United States of America with two oceans. Now, if that doesn't get you fired up and doesn't get you excited, doesn't get you riled up, I don't know what can. We get our first glimpse at a young Jed Wingate picking away on his banjo to the tune of Oh Susanna as the sheet music fades into the screen. Young Jed here is played by child star Johnny Fox. The savvy producers at Paramount generated crossover appeal between media forms by featuring the famous song Oh Susanna in a prominent role, superimposing the song sheet music over an image of Jed, Molly's little brother, playing the banjo early in the film. This sheet music, branded with images from the film, would have been available for purchase in the lobby of the family-friendly movie theater or picture palace where the film played, writes film historian Matt Hauska. It is 1848, and two wagon trains are fixing to meet up in Westport Landing, Missouri, which is known as Kansas City these days. Jesse Wingate, played by Steubenville, Ohio native Charles Ogle, leads the main caravan, while Mexican war veteran Will Banyan, played by J. Warren Kerrigan, heads the smaller wagon train from Liberty. In May of that year, the movie tells us, a great covered wagon caravan gathered there from every section of the Ohio and Mississippi valleys, eager to brave the 2,000 miles of hardship that lay between Westport and Oregon. The settlers are anxious to get off and run and eager to dip their plows into Oregon soil, but far out westward on the westward trail stands another plow that bravely started for Oregon. The owners of this one seem to have met an untimely demise. An Indian chief warns his braves that the pale face is always advancing towards the setting sun, and bringing this monster weapon, the plow, to bury the buffalo, uproot the forest, and level the mountain. And for those reasons, the pioneers must be slain, or the red man perishes, he says. At Westport Landing, it is agreed that Wingate will be the captain of the joined wagon groups, and his second-in-command, Sam Woodhull, will lead the Liberty Wagons. Woodhull is played here by Alan Hale Sr. Wingate decides to put Banyan on herding patrol, keeping the wagon train's considerable livestock herd alive and together. Sam Woodhull, a longtime admirer of Jesse's daughter Molly Wingate, played by Lois Wilson, takes the moment 
to pop the question. He wants to be married right here in Westport. Molly Wingate, like I said, played by Lois Wilson, is unsure of this potential union. I don't know. Somehow, I'd rather wait, Sam. Later that day, Sam Woodhull notices Molly's increasing interest in bad boy Banyan. Like I mentioned, Woodhull does not like the Liberty Man. He even calls out some scandals and chicanery in Banyan's military career. He talks to Banyan about losing his commission. As Banyan is introduced, we also get our introduction to my favorite character in the movie, and I'm guessing maybe, hopefully, possibly yours, William Bill Jackson. He is played wonderfully by Ernest Torrance. He and Jed watch these introductions from afar. But a young Jed is, giving, is a giving child and gives Jackson some of his chewing tobacco. Such a nice kid. Banyan introduces Jackson and gives the assembled crew his resume. Folks, Banyan says this is William Jackson who knows every foot of the trail between here and Oregon. Ernest Torrance Thompson was born on June 26, 1878 in Edinburgh, Scotland. Performing was always in his blood. He was a great pianist and opera singer in his youth. He was official as far as schooling and concerned by graduating from the Stuttgart Conservatory and the Edinburgh Academy before receiving a scholarship at London's Royal Academy of Music. After some touring gigs, vocal issues would cause Torrance to leave his singing career behind and trade it in for some thespianism. Both Ernest and his brother, acting brother David, he's not acting as his brother, he's his brother who is also an actor. Both Ernest and his actor brother David moved to the States, with Ernest and David ending up in New York by September of 1911. Ernest and his brother would hone their acting chops on the stages of Broadway. These roles brought Ernest to the attention of the movers and shakers in early Hollywood. During the course of his 12-year film career, Ernest made 49 films, both silent and talkies. Some notable productions on his resume included The Covered Wagon, The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923, starring as Captain Hook in 1924's Peter Pan, appearing opposite Clara Bow in 1926's Mantrap, and appearing with Buster Keaton in 1928's Steamboat Bill Jr. And that's just a little sampling. He managed to cross the great sound divide, but wouldn't enjoy that sound success for long. Ernest Torrance died suddenly on May 15, 1933. While en route to Europe by ship, Torrance suffered an acute gallstone attack and was rushed back to a New York City hospital. He died of complications following the surgery. He was only 54. The talented actor posthumously received a star on the world-famous Hollywood Walk of Fame on February 8, 1960. And if you want to pay your respects, look no further than 6801 Hollywood Boulevard. Turning back from the real man to his cinematic tracker version, Jackson takes the opportunity to convince Wingate that Banyan is the man to lead the wagon train, but those pleas fall on deaf ears. Even Wells says that Jesse is the rightful leader to the group. Woodhull laughs at Banyan when Wingate reiterates Woodhull's captainship of his group. Now The, ba- the Banyan-Molly quasi-flirtation culminates in Will and Molly helping a little girl whose favorite doll has been broken the two team up to fix it, and the little girl is over the moon. On the 24th day of May 1848, the mightiest caravan that was ever to crawl across the Valley of the Platte awaited the bugle call of Westward Ho. Jesse Wingate's young son, Jed, cracks the whip, and that sets the train in motion. Now, to further illustrate the huge scale of this production, the daily expenses came in at around twelve to $13,500 a day. 
and Cruz and his cinematographer Carl Brown made sure to get as many wagons in every big shot as possible. Doing this really adds to the scope of the picture and really makes many of the shots look incredibly epic. While we're talking about the monstrous nature of this movie, let's talk a bit about Camp Cruise. We heard a little bit about it from earlier from Lois Wilson, but we're going to talk about this uh, stretch of land that was given to the housing for all the cast, crew, animals, and wagon-toting extras. Camp Cruise had tents for 3,000, a complete commissary department with people eating in three shifts of 1,000 each, its own electric lighting plant, a blacksmith shop, construction and carpentry departments, a post office, a costume department, a doctor's office, paint shop, and an armory. So basically, the stuff you get on your run-of-the-mill small indie movie, right? Now, the movie tells us two weeks out, 200 weary miles behind, leagues of unknown danger ahead, already crushing hardship, discontent and homesickness breaking many a pioneer spirit. Day after day, disheartened ones gave up the struggle, turning their wagons back. In a break in the action, Molly asks Will if she can ride his horse. Alright, get your minds out of the gutters, everyone. She wants to ride his horse. Will declines, saying it's not safe for a woman. In an effort to one-up Will and impress Molly, Sam offers his steed for the riding. Go ahead, show him you can ride any horse, he tells her. She takes Sam up on his offer, only for the horse to buck to freak out and Molly lose control. Will hops on a horse and chases the wild horse down and pulls the fainted Molly off into safety. Sam and Will face off. Now Sam makes a comment about stories and rumors surrounding Will and his exit from the military. The word is that Will was a thief and that's why he was kicked out of the U.S. Army. The two are about to start a fight when Sam reaches for his gun, but a rifle pops into Sam's eye view. It belongs to Bill Jackson who says... Seeing Will ain't got his gun, let's see you and me argue, eh? Those hardships and sadness we talked about earlier really come to the forefront as a woman dies and is buried. They are burying old Miss Waddles, who was from Pennsylvania. After her burial, ashes are dumped on her grave to hide her scent from animals and engines, Jackson tells us. Day after day, week after week, the grind of toiling to cover 12 pitiful miles a day, and each night huddled around campfires that peer, feebly pierce the encircling gloom, the pioneers sit. One night, as settlers gloomily sit around those campfires, several of Banyan's Liberty Boys, including Bill Jackson, start a dance party to lift everyone's spirits, and Banyan pulls Molly into a joyous Virginia reel. Will and the Liberty Boys really reinvigorate the weary travelers as morale rises and a party breaks out. Jealous, Sam Woodhull tells Molly's father, I don't think Molly ought to make so free with a man like Banyan. He goes on to tell Jesse that Will was kicked out of the U.S. Army for stealing cattle. Jesse Wingate orders Will to stay away from his daughter, but Molly refuses to believe the stories of cattle theft. Will leaves as the other pioneer folk dance the night away. The screenplay for The Covered Wagon was written by a Jack Cunningham. According to film historian Toby Roan, Cunningham was one of the most prolific and fast-working screenwriters of the time. To prove that true, Cunningham once completed 10 five-reel films in a 10-week span. Between 1918 and 1925, he wrote scripts for 100 feature films. And in a bit of bonus Pittsburgh knowledge, 
Toby Roan notes Cunningham was the editor of the Pittsburgh Leader, a paper published in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania from 1864 to 1923. In amongst other writing and editing gigs, Cunningham decided to try his hand at scripts. And that career change, well, obviously proved quite successful. As we're looking back at the movie, we find out that the North Fork of the Platte River at last, a broad stream rolling its way to the big Missouri, forming a tremendous barrier to the lumbering train and forcing them to halt on its southern bank. As many of you have experienced in video game form, a crude long ferry provides a crude log ferry provides the only safe passage across the water. This ferry service, run by a small band of friendly Native Americans, run it, but the ten dollar wag per wagon rate they charge is too high, Jed Wingate or Jesse Wingate feels, and the transporting hundreds of wagons would take nearly two months. When Sam Woodhull suggests they ford the river, Bill Jackson tries to warn him the water is too deep. In an effort to visually prove Jackson's point, Banyan rides his horse into the river and shows it is, in fact, too deep. Banyan's plan is to keep up the keep up the river, moving the wagon train up until they strike the cottonwoods, then caulk and timber the wagons, and they will be able to float across from there. That seems like a prudent course of action to me, but not so much to Sam Woodhull. Sam calls Will a coward for not being brave enough to cross at their current location. Sam is humiliated and demands satisfaction from Will in the form of a no-holds-barred fistfight. Jackson takes Sam's gun in order to avoid any unpleasant accidents. Will is able to win this fisticuff-fueled fight, but pulls back before doing any serious damage to Sam. With several fights between the two almost started and one actual throwdown, Jesse Wingate has had enough. To maintain the peace, Wingate suggests the two wagon trains split up. Those that believe Banyan is the light in the way will follow him ahead, while those loyal to Wingate will remain behind. We come to an ideological split amongst the folks. A lot of the pioneers believe Will does know best. Molly, for obvious reasons, remains back with the Wingate group. Eventually, though, everyone goes Will's way, just that the Wingate group is a little bit behind. Sam uses the ferry to take his two wagons across the river so he can scout ahead for grass and buffalo. In reality, it's actually a clever ruse ostensibly to set up an ambush on his handsome antagonist. I'll settle Banyan properly when he gets across Woodhull's schemes. With reaching the other side, the true evil of Sam Woodhull is made clear to us. He is a man who values little, human life especially. After the kind Indians ferry him over, he decides not to pay the ferryman, and in fact shoots him dead. You're a lot of thieving savages. I'll not pay a cent, he yells. While Sam gets murderous, the remaining settlers prepare to make the river crossing. So, after reaching the place where Banyan had already crossed, the Wingate train halted for days while wagon boxes were caulked and logs were chained to the sides, we learn. With their wagons caulked and logs serving as flotation devices, they slowly make their way across the river. The intrepid pioneers conquer the river, but at great cost. Like many a game of Oregon Trail, a lot of wagons and animals pay the price for such a dangerous river crossing. The plunge into the treacherous flood would prove deadly. In real life, and in cinema life. All old school video game references aside, this sequence is really remarkable. In less remarkable events, during the real life filming of this river crossing, two horses panicked and ended up drowning. Toby Rowan relates that upon hearing of the tragedy, 
Lois Wilson was too broken up over it and couldn't and wouldn't film anything the rest of the day. Then appeared the silent messenger of another tragedy. Riding ahead of the others, Will Banyan and Bill Jackson have made it to where Sam crossed. They discover Sam's two wagons burned, his men killed. Being the wily wild man he is, Bill recognizes this carnage as an attack by the Pawnee tribe, but knows they had good reason. Woodhull must have done something pretty tricky, or Bill Jackson can't read engine signs. Sam comes limping out of the dense brush, wounded and bloody. Bill grabs his gun, but Will stops him. Let me finish him off now. They'll think the engines has done it, Bill tries to explain. Tries to rationalize. Will tells him not to do it. Bill responds, Will, don't put off for tomorrow what you can do today. You'll never have this chance at Woodhull again. The filming conditions were often incredibly tough and required the pioneer spirit from all who worked to bring this movie to life. Lois Wilson, in that letter from the set, we learned the difficulties Mother Nature unleashed on the intrepid gang of filmmakers. Wilson writes, Where one day it's as hot as blazes and the next day snows. We had a peach of a snowstorm, and Warren Kerrigan and I sneaked away and built a snowman. Also, we had a flood, which threatened to wash away our whole encampment. Before the Liberty Wagon Train takes off ahead of the Wingate group, Bill Jackson adds Matchmaker to his long list of skills. After telling Jesse Wingate that they will be ahead if they need anything, Bill tells Molly, Will didn't say so, but I'll give you his regards. And you don't say nothing, so I'll take yours back to him. Can I tell you, I love Bill Jackson's character so much. He is so awesome in this movie, that is all. Let's get back to the movie. Later, riding ahead of the Liberty Wagons, Will and Bill join trader Jim Bridger, an old friend of Bill's who is carrying goods to his fort in Wyoming. Bridger, the film tells us, was a lone nomad of the prairie with his small caravan traveling between the new frontier and civilization, unmolested because he carried no plow and sought no land. Since we just met Jim Bridger, let's acquaint ourselves with the man who played him, Tully Marshall. He was born William Phillips on April 10th or 13th, 1864, in Nevada City, California. He was, indeed, a Civil War baby, luckily born away from the action. Marshall wasted no time in getting into showbiz by appearing on stage at the age of five for a traveling vaudeville act. In his obituary from the March 11th, 1943 edition of the New York Times, we read, During his teens, he served as a curtain lifter, but it was not until he was 20 that he left college at Santa Clara, California to play small roles in vaudeville in San Francisco. By the late 1880s, Marshall was making a name for himself on the New York stages. At this point, his versatility as an actor was on full display, as he was performing comedies and tragedies alike. His greatest stage success came with Clyde Finch's The City, which opened in December of 1909 and incredibly ran until 1911. On the the personal and professional side of things, we go back to the New York Times. Mr. Marshall married the dramatist Marion Neiswanger, who was known publicly as Marion Fairfax in 1899. She wrote The Builders, which her husband produced and starred in. It opened in Pittsburgh in 1907 and later was brought to New York. Marshall would take his talents to the cinemas in 1915 at the suggestion of D.W. Griffith. As a film actor, Marshall appeared in a bunch of well-known silent productions. Among that list are such heavy hitters as Intolerance, He Who Gets Slapped, and The Cat and the Canary, to name just a few. 
He would ply his trade with Jesse Lasky until 1920 when he went freelance. A real pioneer of the pictures old Tully Marshall was. His career would not only survive the transition to sound, but also thrive. The last 30 or so years of his life would remain quite busy. Maybe his most famous role was as John Wayne's sidekick in another epic western, 1930's The Big Trail. With an incredible career behind him and spanning more movies than I could even count, Marshall died on March 10, 1943 at the age of 78. He suffered a heart attack at his home in Encino, California, and was buried in Hollywood Forever Cemetery. The movie tells us it's early autumn. Separated by a few meager miles as effectively as though an ocean rolled between them, the two crawling trains entered that vast territory which was later to become the state of Wyoming. As the two wagon trains crossed the Great Plains, the settlers avoid starvation by killing buffalo. This was a hunt to fill starving mouths. This was a great segment of action in buffalo chases. Lots of wild buffalo running around and horses doing horse stuff. Also, during this extended sequence, we see Sam Woodhull crash his horse and go flying into a bog. Surely he would have died if not for being saved by Bill Jackson. But, in his defense, Jackson makes the rescue not knowing it was Sam Woodhull. Once he realizes it was Sam, he tries throwing him back in, but is stopped again by Mr. Do-Gooder Will Banyan. Jackson pleads his case again to kill off Sam, but Banyan is way too kind and noble to off anyone, even a rival as jerky and murderous as Woodhull. In the February 1923 issue of Picture Play magazine, we read, It took three days to find the buffalo and run them down within camera range. For not being well-mannered studio buffalo, they wouldn't obey the assistant director's orders as the other actors did. So that the excited herd wouldn't plunge into the cameras, a platform had to be built as solidly as pioneer stockades and the cameras mounted on this. And though the buffalo plunged right toward them and butted against the sides of the platform, the cameramen went on grinding. In early October, the Banyan train reaches Fort Bridger, home of Jim Bridger and his two Native American wives. This is also where we meet Joe Dunstan, a scout and messenger for the U.S. Army, and we find out he is taking important news to the East Coast. They've discovered gold in California. The gold rush is on. And later on, Joe Dunstan and Jim Bridger end up getting drunk together, leading the courier to offhandedly mention that Will Banyan has been reinstated as an officer because an army investigation found that he commandeered cattle to save his detachment from starvation. He was no cattle thief. Although Jim is anxious to tell Will the great news, he forgets the details when he suddenly sobers up after an impromptu shooting contest. As the Wingate wagons arrive at the fort, gold fever spreads among the pioneers. Molly relents and agrees to marry Sam Woodhull. The wagons press on. On the day of the wedding, Bill Jackson slips into her wagon and tells her he has good news about Will Banyan, but can't remember it until he gets drunk enough. As Will and Jim are talking, Jim asks if Will is better off following the Gold Trail instead of the Oregon Trail. This strikes a chord with Will. After the conversation, Jim Bridger goes out on a hunt for booze so he can get liquored up again and possibly remember the news that he was supposed to pass on to Banyan. The only problem with that plan is that Fort Bridger is dry. What little booze they had was drunk the night before. Their carousing, in effect, finished off the last of the booze. The Jim Bridger in this film is actually based off a real-life James Felix Bridger. 
Toby Roan explains that the real world Bridger was one of the world's foremost mountain men, trappers, scouts, and guides to explore the western United States in the mid-19th century. He also served as a mediator between tribes and encroaching settlers. We cut to the arriving Wingate train, and more specifically, Molly and Sam. Sam tells her they will be married at Fort Bridger, and she's not exactly happy about this news. On the other end, Will thinks about what Jim told him. He realizes that his past will keep him from being with Molly, and after a heart-to-heart with Bill, Will makes the decision, I'm going to move out right away, for California, he tells his friend. The whispered secret of gold flashed like magic through the Liberty Camp, the film tells us. California became the promised land, but Banyan thought only of Molly's wedding as he gave the order that separated the two trains forever. A heartbroken Molly watches as Will's group takes off. That night, however, a festive spirit has taken over the Wingate camp. What was the cause of high spirits in Hullabaloo? It was those nuptials of Molly Wingate and Sam Woodhull. Whilst everyone else is living it up that night, Molly is in her wagon trying to delay the inevitable. There is hope, however. Jim Bridger has snuck his way into her wagon. You mustn't marry, Sam. Leastways, not until I can get drunk enough to recollect what I got to tell ye, he pleads. He goes on to tell her that he could only get some, if he could only get some liquor, the info would surely return to him. She digs out a jug and Jim Bridger gets to drinking. Molly runs a bit of infer- interference to give Jim time to get wasted. Soon it happens. When Molly gives him enough liquor to remember, she is overjoyed at the news and asks Jim to take her ahead to Banyan's wagon train. She goes out and tells Sam the news. We have misjudged Will, she tells him. I'm going to him now. As she and Jim Bridger prepare to leave, a Native American snipes her with an arrow from a nearby rock ledge. The arrow pierces her chest. Soon the Indians will be bringing a full-on attack to the Wingate caravan at daybreak. They are surrounded and basically doomed. Things are so bad, even Sam Woodhull pleads for someone to go get Banyan. None of the adults, however, would be able to sneak past the wide enemy perimeter. Enter young Jed Wingate, who runs on foot to warn the Liberty Wagons ahead. After a night of tense watchfulness, the dawn came, swift, sudden, and ominous. The wagons were circled, and the settlers were able to ward off the massacre long enough for Banyan's men to ride in at the last moment and turn that tide of battle. The pioneers were safe. All the while the battle was going on, a delirious and seriously injured Molly called for Will, much to the grin, much to the chagrin of Sam. This was a crazy battle scene that rivals anything put to film these days. From an action standpoint, the scene was on point. But action alone really is not enough to make something awesome. The visuals of this segment are really breathtaking. We get wide shots of a ton of wagons and the settlers and Native Americans battling. It is really an incredible sight to behold. Now, I always get squeamish when I see crazy stunts and hard falls in this age of film. I like to tell myself that everyone knows what they're doing and everything is totally and completely safe. And it was in this wild battle scene that I think we watched a horse die from falling off a cliff. Yeesh. Like I said, when I see stuntmen at this time doing stuff, I like to think that they're safe. Everyone knows what they're doing. Precautions are being taken. And also with the animals, I like to think that people that love the animals are taking care of them and everyone is looking out for the best wishes of these animals. But when you fall, when you see a horse take a jump off a cliff, it makes me wonder, it makes me question some things, it makes me question the, uh, 
the longevity of some of these animals on set. And to that point, animal safety, unfortunately, wasn't always the utmost concern in this picture. Between the drowning of those horses earlier, the killing of seven buffaloes during the filming of the hunt, and stunts and falls on horseback that look incredibly rough on our equine friends, and then you add in, on top of all that, the horse that went off the cliff, uh, it makes me wonder. But sad animal stuff aside, we are now in the aftermath of the action. Both sides have incurred terrible losses. Will Banyan is the big hero, and everyone cheers for him but Sam Woodhull, of course. Also on the anti-Banyan side are Molly's parents, who deny him the opportunity to see her, beings that they still don't know that Will has been exonerated. During the skirmish, Jim Bridger was also badly injured, so he can't tell the news either. Bill Jackson tells Will that he won't leave his friend. He will stay there until Jim Bridger is healthy. Delayed for weeks by the loss of men and wagons, Wingate moved on in the face of a new obstacle, the first fall of snow. Before leaving, she tells Bill to tell Will, I'm talking about Molly, of course, before leaving, Molly tells Bill to tell Will that she will be waiting for him in Oregon. With snow ahead, the wagon trains reach a signpost pointing one way to California and the other to Oregon. Many of the pioneers drop their plows off the wagons and head for those golden fields of California, while Jesse Wingate leads the others to Oregon. Before leaving, she tells Bill to tell Will that she will be waiting for him in Oregon, which I just said, so disregard that. The film walks us through what happens next, and it's hardly a surprise. Hundreds of miles to the west, past Fort Hall, third and last outpost along those 2,000 miles of toil, danger, and exhaustion, stands a famous signpost splitting the trail. And here Wingate met his greatest obstacle, greed. Now, Turning to the director of this film, James Cruz, he wasn't the original in director in envisioned for The Covered Wagon, and we learned that from Toby Roan. That spot in the director's chair was originally offered to Cecil B. DeMille, who was already a proven commodity at Paramount. He wasn't interested even as the scope of the picture grew, but it ended up with Cruz, which ended up being the right choice, I believe. Various factions of the pioneers start arguing whether farming in Oregon or gold in California is the better option. Will Banyan makes his choice to go to Cali, while Bill Jackson decides to stay behind a while with Jim Bridger and join later. Sam also follows the gold rush, but before leaving, promises Molly that Banyan will never have her. I know you'll never marry me, and if I can find Banyan, you'll never marry him either, he tells her. Month after month, over the western Rockies, northwest across the thirsty land of the Shoshones and the mighty snake, the men of the plow held to their purpose. The Wingate train had made it to Oregon. They had beaten the video game. But one person wasn't concerned with high scores, and that would be Molly Wingate. We move to a glimpse of those that took the golden path now. The film tells us, The spring of 49, and what of those who made up the mammoth wagon train that bravely started from Westport? Some found only bitter disappointment and defeat, and some found the end of the rainbow. We're in California and following Bill Jackson as he hunts for his friend Will Banyan. He asks a stranger his whereabouts. The helpful citizen gives Bill the address, but adds, Funny, you're the second stranger that's asked about him today. Later, Bill finds his now grizzled friend panning for gold and delivers Molly's message. Well, 
not so much as grizzled, but he definitely is having a bad hair day. Don't get me wrong. Banyan still has his handsome leading man looks, but his hair seems to be the only thing the filmmakers felt should look a little roughshod. An incredibly happy and joyous Will Banyan packs his huge amount of gold and prepares to leave with Bill. We get another rendition of Oh Susanna. Oh then Susanna, don't ye cry for me. I'm going back to Oregon with the gold dust on my knee. But all is not right in this little patch of gold in heaven. Little do they know, Sam Woodhull waits outside in prime ambush mode. But as he takes aim at Will, Bill Jackson shoots him dead. Bill finally got his Sam Woodhull kill that we've waited the entire movie for. Bill explains his actions thusly. Sorry, Will. No D was sought on sparing that critter, but some bacon grease got on my finger and it slipped. Banyan gives a wry smile and the two shake hands and hug. After Bill wipes his hands, of course, cheeky devil. Character of Bill Jackson absolutely rules. Love this man. Now, a man of incredible wealth, Banyan heads to Oregon and reunites with Molly at the home of the early settlers of Oregon. Her family looks on approvingly as the two are about to kiss. Until they're interrupted by little Jed playing Oh Susanna. And the film ends as the two embrace. Now that we've spent an incredibly long amount of time talking about what happened, it's time to spend a little bit of time talking about what we and others thought about what happened in The Covered Wagon. The easiest and most succinct way to sum up my thoughts on The Covered Wagon is to say it is a Stuart movie. These days, my shorthand for something I like and jive with gets the Stuart tag. Whether a video game is a Stuart game or a wrestling match is a Stuart match, it is always something in my wheelhouse of knowledge, capability, or entertainment value. And this certainly was a Stuart movie. From the scale of the production to the performances and every metric in between, this movie its a success. As a movie viewer, I do love small-scale character-driven movies, but sometimes I want a little spectacle in life. The Covered Wagon is exactly that, a big-budget movie extravaganza with a little something for everyone. Action, thrills, chills, romance, even multiple renditions of Old Susanna. There are so many things to love about this flick, and I can't start any list of those things without bringing up the performance of Ernest Torrance's Bill Jackson. For me personally, he made this movie on the acting side of things. He really embodied his character and brought him to life to the point where he jumped off the screen. Whether it was the small mannerisms or facial reactions to something happening on screen, these little acting choices really worked and brought his Wild West Explorer to life. You get his great character work and thought throughout the duration of the movie. And just as an example, his drunken hijinks with Jim Bridger, this really shows the character at full awesomeness. You get so many fun facial expressions, you get so much weird nuancey performance stuff that it really adds to the scene and really pulls you into the performance really believe that he is what he is portraying also another scene that really brought out the best in Ernest Torrance for me was the final reuniting with Banyan and the subsequent killing of Sam Woodhull Torrance really embodied the character and was I feel the keystone to this whole production on the performance side at least I was not the only person to walk away impressed by Mr. Torrance Many of the reviews concerning The Covered Wagon brought rave reviews about the performance of Torrance's Bill Jackson. He and Tully Marshall would routinely get the most shine from many of the experts and critics writing about the movie. Robert Sherwood would write, The outstanding performance in The Covered Wagon is contributed 
by the lengthy Ernest Torrance as a picturesque frontiersman. I was so firmly aboard the Bill Jackson train that I wished there was some sort of spin-off film for his character to live on in. I'm not saying a cinematic universe centered on the covered wagon is necessary. Just get this grizzled yet incredibly charismatic actor and character some more adventures in the wide open spaces. Basically, this last little bit has been a long-winded way of saying that Ernest Torrance was fantastic. Now, let's talk about the production itself. Outside of releasing podcast episodes at wildly random times, I also do film work on the side. I've worked on television shows, commercials, even a few movies. So I have a little experience in what it takes to bring something to the screen. Granted, I've never worked on anything near the scope of the covered wagon. I can vouch for how hard it is to make a movie. Things can be incredibly tough with just a cast and crew in the single digits. Just getting the right shots and sound, to recruiting extras and finding locations and props. The smallest of productions can be an incredibly taxing affair so I can't even imagine what it was like to put together a film as epic as The Covered Wagon. Truly amazing, and my hat's off to everyone involved. In the absence of Morton Hall commentary and his passive-aggressive movie reviews that we have all come to know and love, we have been turning to Robert Sherwood for any reviews needed lately. And this episode is no different. Our first look at the critical reception to The Covered Wagon comes from Mr. Sherwood, and the April 5th, 1923 edition of Life magazine. Sherwood writes, The covered wagon is a great picture, not so much because it is based upon a magnificent theme as because it has been produced with genuine skill. James Cruz, who directed it, and Jack Cunningham, who adapted the story, have stuck closely to the point. They have refrained from trimming Mr. Huff's story with any movie hokum and have had a sense enough to appreciate the essential simplicity of the drama. Sherwood continues, the picture is actually as realistically biographical as Nanook of the North. It never appears to be a trumped-up affair played by grease-painted actors in a Klieglet studio. The dust raised by the covered wagons is real dust. The Indians who battle to save their planes from the white invaders are real Indians. And the, beard on the, the beards on the protruding chins of the pioneers are real beards, the reviewer continues. In every respect, the covered wagon is a worthy achievement. As a motion picture, it is thrilling, forceful, and sincere. As a historical document, it is of inestimable value. I commend it to the attention of all Americans, Sherwood concludes. Again, a big shout-out to Bobby Sherwood for stepping in for review duty during our current Mordant Hall drought of 2023. Surely will soon turn into a national crisis if we don't get him back on. But, movie reviewer aside, the enjoyment of this distinctly American adventure wasn't strictly limited to the pioneer-loving citizens of the old U.S. of A. In a review from the Sydney Sunday Times newspaper out of Australia from October 28, 1923, the review reads, The covered wagon is one of the most realistic pictures ever made. Some of the scenes are almost crude and savage in their stark reality, and the danger encountered in staging such incidents as the river crossing must have been real enough in all conscience. The cast is an excellently chosen one, and the work of Lois Wilson, Warren Kerrigan, and Urs Torrance, who plays Bill Jackson, Banyan Scout and Bodyguard, is especially meritorious. I told you, everyone loves Ernest Torrance and Bill Jackson. Undeniable, really is undeniable. Everyone loves Ernest Torrance. The release of the film would manage to somehow live up to the scope of the original production of the film, 
Major screenings and premieres were held all over the country. No expense was spared in the rollout of this production. The March 10, 1922 Motion Picture News reported that a world premiere screening was scheduled for the following evening at a major charity event in the ballroom of the Plaza Hotel in New York City. The article reads, The film opened five days later on March 16, 1923 at the Criterion Theater, where huge electric signs displayed a covered wagon fording a stream on both the Broadway and 44th Street sides of the building. The film opened in Hollywood, California at Sid Grauman's Egyptian Theater on April 10, 1923. Two weeks later, the covered wagon was screened for President and Miss Warren G. Harding in the East Room of the White House in Washington, D.C. Also in attendance were members of the U.S. Supreme Court, ranking military leaders, and various U.S. senators and congressmen. The 25-member orchestra from the Criterion Theater provided accompaniment. President Harding dedicated the film to former President Theodore Roosevelt, who had died four years earlier. The Covered Wagon was a critical success and the number one box office hit of 1923. The 1929 film Daily Yearbook voted as one of the top best features of 1923, as reported in the February 7, 1930 issue. The Covered Wagon is a landmark film that is often forgotten about today, but it has a legacy you really can't easily forget. Film historian Matt Hauska breaks down the legacy of this classic American film. Hauska writes, It's worth reiterating, if not for the enormous success of the covered wagon, it's entirely possible John Ford would never have made the Iron Horse. And without the Iron Horse, Ford's first epic western, would there be Stagecoach, My Darling Clementine, The Searchers? Would the western have come back as a genre worthy of prestige or seriousness? Would there be any westerns at all? For myriad of reasons, the covered wagon is certainly a landmark in the history of American cinema, not only for what it was, but for what it opened up. As we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is a segment where we join our favorite cinematic stars on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, the celebrity spectacle converge in Where Are They Now? Your guide to paying your respects to the epic directors of epic movies that have entertained us so much. By 1941, the Thanhauser website writes about James Cruz, his movie career was over. His films from the late 1920s on had been a mixed bag, with some successes and many failures. His first wife, Marguerite Snow, and their daughter Julie were frequent visitors to Cruz's home in the late 1930s and early 40s, indicating that the former breach had at least partially healed. On June 30, 1941, James Cruz married Alberta Beatrice McCoy in Hollywood, Cruz was ailing with heart problems at the time of the nuptials. Hal Moore, a cinematographer, acted as the best man, and his wife, the actress Evelyn Venable, was the maid of honor. While this wasn't the first trip down the aisle for Cruz, it was the first marriage for Alberta. Alberta McCoy Cruz would outlive her husband, dying on July 7, 1960, and buried at the Hollywood Memorial Park Cemetery. But on the James Cruz side of the marriage, fate stepped in and ended the nuptials fairly quickly, with James Cruz entering mortality on August 3, 1942, at the age of 58. He died virtually penniless in Hollywood at the home he had shared with Alberta for over a year. Following his cremation at the Hollywood Memorial Park crematory, his ashes were placed in a crypt at the Hollywood Memorial Park mausoleum. On the Hollywood Walk of Fame front, you can visit and pay your respects to James Cruz on, at 6922 Hollywood Boulevard, 
His star was awarded posthumously on February 8, 1960, a date he would share with fellow Covered Wagon alumni Ernest Torrance. So with the sun setting on this episode, we want to thank you for taking this trip on the Oregon Trail with us. And congratulations to all of you listeners out there that survived and didn't die of dysentery over the course of the podcast. Did you enjoy this romp across the American plains? In a film with exhilarating action, what were your favorite scenes? What films in the Western genre do you want us to cover next? Let us know all that and more at the various social media hangouts of the Golden Silent Films podcast. On that note, if you have forgotten, we are on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you think of this episode. What silent-related movies, past or present, do you want us to dip into next? Our world of silent movie knowledge and experience is constantly growing, and we need your input for our future episodes here in Season 3 and beyond. You can always hitch your social media wagons to the Golden Silence cast on Instagram and at Golden Silence 1 on Twitter. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast that allows it, subscribe, rate, review. I reckon it'll help a lot here, and we love hearing your thoughts and ideas. We really, really, really appreciate all of your incredible support, and seeing how much you folks are listening only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes. We hope you had as much fun on the trail as we did putting it together. With all that being said... Thank you to all of you fine pioneers for all of your fine pioneering. And don't forget, the silence are golden, and the talkies, they're just a fad. So before we leave, I wanted to leave with a couple quotes about James Cruz from writer Jim Tully. These were really good quotes, really awesome sounding things that didn't quite fit in the episode proper. But I didn't want to not say them, so... You're getting them here, a little extra bonus. So Jim Tully writes about James Cruz. He writes, With a powerful faculty for observation, he too often turns life into a series of remembered gags, a semi-barbarian, a hedonistic mastodon in his capacity for the enjoyment of life, unmoral and antisocial save in his own mansion. He is the despair and the delight of one who would try to analyze him. If his sensibilities were a trifle keener, If he were just a bit more sensitive, Tully writes, he would be, possibly, a greater artist and a less successful commercial director. He has a corporation and not an artistic conscience. And if you can find anything cooler than being called a hedonistic mastodon, I would love to hear it because that's about as good as it gets.